exciting. But we're back in our Corinthians series today, and I get to preach on a crazy subject and then leave. So if you have any issues, my email is normannielsen at, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, You can take it up with him. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 1 says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Well, welcome to church today. (laughs) If you're a first-time guest and this is your first Sunday, I apologize. You couldn't have picked a weirder Sunday to come as we dive into the crazy parts of 1 Corinthians. And I just want to be upfront and honest with you all here today that after chapter 5, this is the start of some of the harder lessons and teachings of the Bible. And it's going to be crazy, and we're going to go through it together. And I just want to give this disclaimer that the truth of God is sharp and it pierces us. And I want you to have the freedom to share that with me when you're not understanding something, when you are disagreeing with something, or if you need more clarity on something. Because we're going to be delving into some very tough subjects, and it's vital that you are on the same page in our understanding. Even if we end that conversation and we still differ, that's okay. Uh, you're still, uh, that's still wonderful. But I want to make sure you have room to challenge and talk and, and work this out. But this, this sermon and the next couple few uh, that we're going to go through are going to be dealing with some more mature themes. Nothing explicit, but we are going to be talking about uh, uh, things to do with sexual immorality. Uh, but today's sermon, it's going to be mostly in the background because even though verse 1 starts off this way, the, the, what this gentleman is doing is not the forefront and not the focus of our passage today, but rather what's in sight is how the church is dealing Dealing with this blatant sin. But I will just claim again, we do offer kids ministry, so if you're just not ready for your kids to hear this, you know, you can send them all down, but it will not be inappropriate, and I will not be explicit, but we will deal with the language of Scripture. But now if you remember, the first, in the first week, we saw that there were five major categories in the book of 1 Corinthians in Paul's letter. The first section, chapters 1 to 4, is all dealing with divisions within the church. And now in chapter 5, Paul starts to address some of the confusion that the church has with regarding sex. We're going to be talking about a whole, a whole different subjects around this, about homosexuality, about LG, all the LGBTQ issues and whatnot, and the church's response to just nor, uh, to other sexual sins within that we don't focus on as much as a church because Paul is going to be focusing on them. And Corinth, you may recall, is not- a notoriously immoral city. It was situated between two major ports of the day, which made this city an economic powerhouse in the Roman Empire. It became a vacation, a popular vacation destination, and the and the overall population like. The, the average population of Corinth was young, upworldly people, and they brought with them common issues that surround their age. So it's not a surprise that sexual immorality was an issue. Uh, and, it's, and, and plus, the city boasted scores and scores of temples it, that uh, were both to Roman and Greek gods, and part of worship in these temples, that some of them was prostitution. So the point is that sexual immorality was all around them. And on some level, it shouldn't surprise us that it was in the ranks of the church because it was everywhere. But on another level, it should surprise us that it got into the ranks of the church. Paul uh, goes beyond, he says, this sexual immorality that you're dealing with as a church goes beyond even what the pagans would tolerate. Not even the Gentiles would tolerate this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, His father's wife either means his mom or his stepmom. And I don't care to find out, really. (laughs) Like, I don't want to know. But most scholars say it's his stepmom since Paul says his father's wife instead of his mother. But again, that's up for debate. It doesn't matter. But either way, if there's a woman in your life that you call mom and then you say, will you go to prom with me? You've probably crossed the line, okay? Let's Let's just leave it there. But sadly, Paul also writes, is sleeping with and not slept with, which means it's in the present continuous tense that it's an ongoing issue at the writing of this letter. 
This passage alone should help us from glamorizing the early church like we tend to do as Christians. Oh, if only it was like the early church. What? People sleeping with their stepmoms? That's what you want? Uh, But this should help us from over-glamorizing the early church because, yes, in our 90 years of history, we've had a lot of crazy issues, but I, I can confidently say I don't think this was one of them. And as your pastor, I ask, can we keep it that way? Okay? Paul says this kind of action, this sin is not even tolerated among the pagans. You know it's bad when your unbelieving neighbor's going, that's nasty. You shouldn't be doing that. You should not be accepting that. But the problem is, is that the Christians in Corinth were not mourning over it. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Why weren't they dealing with it? Well, they might have been a few who thought, hey, this is Corinth, uh, to each their own. Back then, the ancient philosophers always said, what happened in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, that was a common saying, who are we to judge? And there may have been some who were saying this, well, hey, look, Christ has freed us. He has set us free from the law. If we are free in Christ, we are free indeed. And that means I can love whoever I want to love. Love is love. Love will win. And who are you to tell me that I can't love that person? Paul seems to address both of these groups in his explanation. But it seems to me that that the, the way that Paul is speaking to them assumes that most of the people within the church in Corinth knew that this action was wrong. And they knew that Paul knew that they knew it was wrong. And the reason that they were not dealing with it was because it would create a scandal within the church. It would create a black eye, per se, on the reputation of the church. And they didn't want to go through that. They were so arrogant that they didn't want to deal with that. And these kinds of situations always get messy within the church, don't they? Usually when you confront people like this, they don't say, Oh, what am I doing is wrong? Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't aware. I'm sorry. Let me stop. It's never that easy. No, likely the guy would get offended. He would make a scene. Maybe he was even a prominent figure within the church and gave lots of money. I don't know. That's all speculation. And this is just going to get messy. So the Corinthian leadership's going, well, let's just not deal with it. Let's not poke the hornet's nest. It's easy to leave well enough alone. Have you ever felt like that with people in your life, situations in your life, where you know someone is doing something wrong, fundamentally, biblically wrong, but you know how they're going to respond, so you go, it's just easier. Someone else will deal with that. I'm not going to poke the hornet's nest. I think we've all been there at times. We're human. We naturally run from confrontation. I know some who run to confrontation, and that's a different issue, but, but here, Paul is challenging the Corinthians and saying, look, You have a brother who is being destroyed by sin within your church, and you're not concerned about it. You're more concerned about your reputation or not rocking the boat than rather helping this poor soul. He says in verse 2, should you not mourn? And that word mourn is no different than the word mourning at a funeral, weeping for them as if they died. Sin has destroyed this person at your church. And Paul says, mourn. Mourn this. This should be keeping you up at night. And then Paul finishes verse 2 by saying, let him who has done this be removed from you. And maybe you caught, that caught your attention and you read that and you're like, what is he talking about there, Aaron? Like, are we talking about removing someone? Like, from a church? Yeah. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. It's true. We're called to unconditional love. You might be thinking, well, how is this consistent with love and acceptance? That's not very Christ-like. That's a common objection. And it's true, we are called to that. We are called to unconditional love as Christians, but let's never confuse this. Our fellowship as Christians is conditional. And we mix that as believers. Well, I gotta love them. Who are we to judge? No, no, no. Our fellowship is important and must be protected. By the elders, yes, but you as the membership as well. So we're called to love, and, and maybe you, you say back, well, I thought, I thought we were to be an open and an embracing community to our, to our community, because that's what you're teaching us, Aaron. Go in the community and love people, and, and that's true. Our primary calling, though, is to represent Jesus Christ and his family well. And yes, Jesus welcomed into his family people with all kinds of problems, from all kinds of tragic and broken backgrounds. And Paul himself, right, he was a murderer. Mary Magdalene, one of the female leaders in the early church, was a prostitute and, and even had some demons on her. But each of them 
had one thing in common. All the disciples, all the apostles, all, the, all these people being used by God in the early church had one thing in common. They came to a point of repentance in their life. A place where they realize that Jesus is Lord and his ways are true and we must follow them. Hear this, church. Jesus can take you with all types of crazy, messed up problems. But you have to be willing to go with him. I can take you to the lake and show you how to fish, but I can't force you to put a hook in the, in the water. you got to be willing to go with Jesus. And I know that raises some questions for you, and don't worry, we're going to deal with those questions at the end of the sermon. But for now, let's keep reading. Verse 2 says, And you are arrogant, ought you rather mourn? Let him who has done this be uh, removed from among you. For absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. That's some strong, hard verses. Can you imagine a more strongly worded sentence than that of verse 5, telling them to deliver this man to Satan? Not only do you just remove him from the membership list and go, oh, I hope another church deals with him. You deliver this man to Satan. And if you're anything like me, you should be asking the question, now, what does that mean? Like, do we have his address? Do we drop him off? Or like, what, what does this mean? All right, let's sit up for a moment because we're going to be dealing with some really hard truth here. Think of this. Think of the church as an embassy, right? It protects you as a Christian, and it authenticates your call upon your life. This is why I'm a big believer in local church membership because it's like joining an embassy where we're saying, yes, you are living an authentic Christian life, and we recognize that. That's why in our bylaws it says after six months of inaccurate, uh, with not having any showing up, not doing anything in our church, we remove you from membership because the elders and I can no longer say you are living in a Christian manner, because we don't know. We haven't seen you. We haven't heard from you. So the church is like an embassy that protects you, that, I, that uh, authenticates the call upon your life, just like a Canadian embassy, if you were traveling abroad, would say, yes, you're a Canadian, yes, your passport's valid, and try to fundamentally protect your Canadian rights. But the Bible says you're no longer of this world, right? But you're of the kingdom of God that is coming. And local churches now act as embassies of a coming kingdom. And these local churches, what they do for you is that they protect you and shield you from some of sin's effects. Some of this protection is practical, and some of this protection is also supernatural. And Paul says to remove this person from the umbrella of the protection that the church is giving so that they would experience some of the pain of their sin in hopes that it wakes them up from the seriousness of it. And Paul draws here, what he's doing is pointing us in a direction to the Passover. In the next few verses, he's going to bring this up repeatedly. Do you remember the Passover, right? God said to Egypt, he says, because of your persistent rebellion on this one designated night, I am going to send the death angel, likely Satan, and he is going to kill every firstborn in households of Egypt. Here's the problem. Israel was still living in Egypt, and Israel was sinful. But God said, if you will take a lamb, and you sacrifice that lamb, and you take the blood, and you put it on the doorposts of your house, the death angel will come again, likely Satan. He will see the blood of the lamb, and then guess what he's going to do? He's going to pass over. That's where that word comes from. Pass over that house and, that, and not enter it, meaning those people are saved. Think about that image and the context of church discipline. Inside the house, under the blood of Jesus, with Christ, we are safe. Outside of the house, we are exposed to death. And Paul is saying, in the same way, put this person outside of the house so they are exposed to the death, uh, to the spiritual death that comes with that, and the curse of sin. And maybe, by the grace of God, when they start to experience the devastation, they will wake up from the seriousness of it and come, up, and come back. 
And this is what we do with someone in the church who names the name of Christ but persists in, in rebellious, stubborn, willful sin. Now let me be clear before you get the pitch, pitchforks. This step is of last resort. It's not that somebody makes a mistake or even a handful of mistakes. It's not that sister so-and-so walks in and gives you a grumpy look and you go, that's it, hand them over to Satan. She's done. Get out of here, right? This is after the church elders have exhausted all avenues of reconciliation and the person in question continues to reject it. It might feel as we're reading here in chapter 5 that Paul is kind of jumping to this, but we have to remember, I think it's verse 9 off the top of my head, Paul says, I've already written you a letter, right? So we're actually coming in the middle of a long discussion. Likely there's been already conversation on this. And so it's not that Paul is jumping to this, but rather we are in the middle of a conversation. Now Paul is being forced to recommend the use of this very rare tactic in church discipline. Uh, uh, and, and some churches, though, have this backwards. It's the first thing they jump to, and that's spiritual abuse. I want you to hear that. That's spiritual abuse. And Jesus, though, actually lays out for us, Paul doesn't give us the steps because he assumes that everybody knows the steps, and they've probably detailed the steps in other letters, but Jesus gives us the steps on how to deal with sinful people within our midst in Matthew 18. Gives us four steps to dealing with sin. And the first one is found in verse 15 of Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first step is private correction. This is the most simple one, but yet the one that is neglected the most. Like just go and talk to the people. Rather, we run to everyone else and complain for six weeks, and then we go talk to the people, and we've caused a whole bunch of issues within the church. So go and talk to them. Don't text them. Don't put cryptic messages up on Facebook and hope they read it and understand you're talking about them. Go to them and tell them your faults between you and them alone. And here's the crazy thing about the, word, the Greek word alone in Greek. You know what it means? It means alone, Right? It's that simple. Go to them alone. Don't bring 10 people with you. Don't gang up on them. Go to them alone and bring your faults. And then Matthew 16 gives us step two. It says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the second step is small group clarification. So if they didn't listen to you, you take two or three people from their immediate circle. If they're in a life group, it's helpful to take them from their small group and go and talk with them. This not only helps ensure in the person's mind that, hey, you mean business. You, this isn't something that you're just going to let dust it under the rug. It, it, it actually hurts you. You want to deal with it. Uh, and, and, but also, here's the other side to step two that we never really focus on. Step two also ensures that you don't have the wrong understanding of what's going on. Maybe you've made a, a molehill into a mountain, and those two or three witnesses go, oh, Aaron, actually, you're the one in error here. Like, that was just a, a, that was just a, a peccadillo of, a, of an issue, and you're making it into this major concern. And that's why it says two or three will establish the charge. But in Jesus' context, he's saying, okay, this person is an issue, and they don't even listen to the small group clarification, so he gives us step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the third step is church admonition, right? So you take it to the church members before the church members and, and, and because this sin that they are engaged in is not just affecting them and not just affecting you, but it's affecting the entire church. So the first step, or sorry, the fourth step is found in the second half of 17. I left it out intentionally. So tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be removed. Let him be as an unbeliever. That's what Jesus is saying. So the fourth step is church exclusion. And this is where you remove them from the membership. This is where you put them outside of the house of the church to be exposed to the activity of Satan. They are still welcome to sit in church. We're not going to bar them from the doors. Lots of unbelievers come to our church every Sunday, but they're just no longer in the capacity of a family member anymore. And this is why when somebody is under church discipline, the elders ask them not to take communion and so forth and participate in leadership roles because they can come, 
They just don't get the benefits of family. And back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul then describes for us what this looks like. So if you flip to Matthew 18, flip on back to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to go to verse 9. Yes, we're skipping some verses. Don't worry. We'll get back to those ones. 1 Corinthians 9 says, I wrote you in a letter, this is that other letter I was talking about, not to associate with sexually immoral people. But look at what verse 10 says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to get out of the world. Right? They're everywhere. You can't not associate with unbelievers. And eat here means fellowship. When he's saying don't eat with them, he's talking about fellowship. It doesn't mean that you're never anywhere that you're not eating together. Like if you're at a, uh, at a neighborhood party and they show up and you're like, get away from me, I'm eating. Wait, wait till I'm done. We can't eat together. No, what, what he's talking about is fellowship. Because in Jesus' time, uh, or in Paul's time, sorry, uh, eating together was the surest sign that you were in fellowship, in an agreement together. That you were implying that you're a family. And Paul's saying to avoid doing things that is implying them the benefits of family. Some scholars even say that eating, Paul is referring here, is communion, and I would agree with that as well. He's saying don't do that because you don't want to imply that God is okay with their blatant, rebellious sin. Paul says there are four reasons, though, we should do this. But before I give you those four reasons, I just want to quick, take a quick time out because there are a couple things I want to be clear. First, when we're talking about public action from the church, because this is public action, this will make its way on drum discussion if it ever happens, right? We, <laughs> it will just go everywhere. We're talking about somebody who is defiantly persistent in something that is blatantly unbiblical. We are not talking about things like, hey, I'm concerned, brother, you're watching too much TV. Hey, your attitude's a little out of check today. Now, don't hear me wrong. We should always have people within our immediate circle who can call us out on those things. It's part of discipleship. It's part of iron sharpening iron. People who are saying, hey, you're dropping the ball here. Can I help you out a little bit? This is why I preach life groups so much because that's where that can happen. But this stage of the later steps of church discipline process is when we're dealing with someone who is overtly defying Jesus' authority but yet still trying to claim the name of Christ. This is such a touchy and abused subject. So I want to be clear. We are talking about major grotesque sins that don't only harm the people but are harming the church and her unity. But even though this subject is uncomfortable, and a lot of us would rather just sweep this passage under the rug and not deal with it. You're probably thinking, Aaron, we're trying to grow the church. Why are you preaching on this? Well, this is how you grow the church. Because I don't care about numbers. I care about you, every single one of you, growing in spirituality. And the way you do that is by having a healthy diet of the entire Bible. Amen? So we have to deal with these hard subjects. And we also have to practice these hard things when necessary. And we have biblical precedent for doing this as we see Paul lay out for us in our verses. So with that, let's look at four reasons very briefly of why the church should remove willfully sinning members from its midst. The first reason is for the sake of the sinning brother. It's for the sake of the sinning brother. We see that in verse 5, which says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in that day of the Lord. Hear this, church. The goal, the hope, the reasoning behind church discipline is always that the person wakes up from their sin. That the pain of being removed from the blessing of the church wakes them up and brings them back to their senses. It's never to punish them. It's never to get even with them. It's never to exercise an authority to show them how big you are. It's never exclusion, even though you might have to go there at some point. But it's never the goal. It's always healing. It's always restoration. And if the heart behind it is not that then you have just entered into the territory of church abuse. And we do not want to go there. The second reason Paul lays out for us is that it's for the sake of other believers. For the sake of other believers. We see this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, so as, so, sorry, as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb, lamb has been sacrificed. Leaven is not a common word that we use often in this day and age. The word that we use is yeast. And you may not know this, and it might ruin your love for bread, but yeast is a type of fungus that goes into the dough and helps bread rise. It's disgusting, but I still love bread, okay? But it's, it, it grows and it quickly multiplies. And if you just take a little bit of that uh, yeast and you put it into dough, soon the whole dough will be filled with yeast. And the Bible says that that is a picture of sin. Just a little bit of yeast will quickly spread throughout the whole lump of dough. Just like a little bit of sin in the community will quickly affect everybody. And so the Passover, God says, take all the yeast, take all of it and put it outside of your house and only have unleavened bread. Why did he do that? Because this is a symbol, a physical symbol of leaving the sin of Egypt behind. We're leaving it behind, and we shouldn't keep it in our house. We shouldn't tolerate it in our house. Another analogy that maybe is a little more modern for us would be cancer cells. Just a few cancer cells left unchecked will so multiply and destroy the body, so you better stop it while it's small, lest it spread throughout your whole body. Right? If you find it when it's localized, you can get rid of it. If you don't, soon it will destroy everything. And in the same way, Paul says open rebellious sin will soon affect the whole church. So take care of it for the sake of the church when it's small and get it outside of the house. And now maybe you're still having trouble here. You're sitting here like, okay, I get it. I hear what you're saying. But how is any of this consistent with love? Well, think of it like this. Think of a family who has an older son who has graduated uh, college, post-secondary school. He's moved back in with his family, and there's a few younger siblings who are still living at home. And the son, for whatever reason, starts dabbling into drugs and all the rest. He starts bringing around all times of questionable people with their drugs in the house. These people and their son start stealing from the house. And, and the parents, they're rightly brokenhearted. Of course they are. What parent wouldn't be? And they're not just worried about their oldest son, but they're worried about the safety of all the younger siblings who are still living in the house. So they have hard conversation after hard conversation, but their son just won't listen. And he keeps doing things that put the family in danger. So finally, the mom and the dad, in love and brokenheartedly, ask the child to go live somewhere else. It's not because they hate their son. It's not because they've given up on him, but they just know that they need to protect their other kids. Plus, life on the street is hard. And maybe if they remove that protective covering and quit giving him such a soft place to land, maybe then he'll wake up from the foolishness of his choices. You get that, right? Like, that's not unloving. In fact, sometimes continuing to house and protect this person is literally the most unloving thing that you can do for them. Because you're enabling them. So in love, you want to house them so that they can experience the consequences of their sin. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So first, we do it for the sake of the sinning brother. Second, for the sake of other believers. And third, for the sake of Christ. We see this in verse 7 to 8. He says, cleanse out the old leaven and, uh, uh, that you may be new, a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's saying, basically, Christ died for sin. We know that. But here's the question then why is the church tolerating within their midst the things that put Christ on the cross? Paul says that believers, when they come to worship, should rid themselves of the leaven of sin. Or in another place, he says, lift up your holy hands and worship. And that means that you're seeking to offer worship to Jesus, Jesus sorry, that is not mixed with the leaven of sin. Now, two things that doesn't mean. And I know, sorry, this sermon is the sermon of a thousand qualifications, but it has to be because this can be taken so wrong so quickly, and I want to protect us from spiritual abuse. First, this doesn't, believe, sorry, this doesn't mean unbelievers can't come to worship. That's just ludicrous. 
They can come. They should come. And they're, they're just not counted, as I said, as part of the family yet. Right? Just like an honored guest in your house, you honor them, you serve them, you love them. But if they start coming into your family meetings and telling you how you should allocate your money, they're going to find the front door real fast, right? right? An honored guest is not the same thing as a family member. Second, it doesn't mean that in, if your life has a lot of problems, you shouldn't worship Jesus, because that means I should go home right now too. Jesus welcomes people with lots of problems and brokenness into his house. He invited the sick and the lame to come to him. He said the healthy... They don't need a physician. He was trying to put the doctors out of work, sorry. They don't need a physician, right? No, I'm just kidding. The, the, only, the, only, the only the sick do. The only question is, is that do you have a posture of repentance towards your sin, or do you have a spirit of defiance about it? Jesus once told a story about a man who he was most pleased with in worship, that he was a tax collector whose life was filled with problems and mistakes. And the, man, and the man, though, had a posture of repentance and brokenness over his sin. He admitted that he needed help. And Jesus said, I would rather have that than someone who has their whole life together, who doesn't realize that they, how much they need. So church, I want you to hear me clearly. Bring your problems to Christ. Be real with him. He already knows them. The problem is, is when we play lip service to God and when we're in defiance against him and yet we pretend Sunday after Sunday to be good Christians. And that's inauthentic. And that's hypocritical. And that hurts the church. Which brings me to the fourth reason, which is for the sake of the outside world. Paul says these steps... They're essential because we need to give the outside world an accurate picture of Jesus Christ. Most of the world will never read the Bible. But you know what they will read? The lives of Christians. We have to present Christ accurately. My favorite superhero growing up was the Invisible Man. Right? Like Superman, he was cool because he could fly. And Batman, he had a car, so he was pretty neat. But the Invisible Man was so underrated. He was like the Nicolas Cage of superheroes, okay? And I mean, like, just, <laughs> just imagine how great life would be for a young kid if you could just turn invisible whenever you want it. My Sunday school teachers would have quit long ago, right? But, but if you ever watch the old cartoons, the only way to catch the invisible man was to throw something on him or to, for example, dump a can of paint on him so you could see his shape. Now, the church is to be like the paint that is poured over the invisible Christ to show the world how he looks. To, that they will learn how glorious he is by how passionately we worship him. Think about that. What does it say about the worth of Jesus and how loving he is by how we love one another within this building? How seriously we take sin, how seriously he takes sin by how seriously we take sin as a membership. So Paul says, for the sake of the outside world, we take sin seriously so they get an accurate picture of Jesus. So that's the four steps the four reasons, sorry, why we go through the pain, the heartbreaking pain and hassle of this process. But we have a special promise from Jesus if we do this. Jesus promised to be with us in a special way. If we, do, we, we, we know this by looking quickly at how he ended his account in Matthew 18. Jesus ends his instructions on calling out your sinful brother or sister with these words. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I love this verse because so many people misquote it. <laughs> they don't even understand the, the, the context. And, the, you know, I always hear it in, in terms of like when only one person shows up to your life group and you go, well, there's two, there's two of us, right? So he's here. And yeah, that's true. Don't hear me wrong. But the context of this verse is very important and gives us the, 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 the reasoning why we go through this process. Because Jesus says that, when you're in this process, this messy process to restore someone, when you're doing the hard work of being a family, he's going, I love that. I'm there for that. And I'm with you. I'm always with you. But I'm with you in this process in a very near and powerful way. The Spirit is present when we do this properly. Fellowship Baptist Church, we want to be a church where Christ is. Amen? We want him in our midst. Christ will be with us if we take sin seriously. And if we don't, he won't. 
My friend told me about a story that just happened in the last couple months at his church down in the States. He pastors it. And uh, he had a, a, a lesbian couple who came to his church and wanted to come and uh, receive Christ back into their lives. And God was doing a work in this couple's life. But they just couldn't get over the fact that his church affirmed what the Bible says and clearly calls sin. And God, so God was doing a work, but they just couldn't get over that, so they tried another church. They went to a downtown church that celebrated their lifestyle, that accepted their lifestyle, that promoted it. But after three weeks, this is what the one partner said to the other in the pew. The presence of God is not in this church. She said this. He quoted it to me. We have a choice. We can go, I'll leave his church's name out. We can go to my friend's church where the presence of God is and they don't accept our lifestyle, and we have to change, or we can go to the church where they accept our lifestyle, but God's not there. And she said to her other partner, you can do what you want, but I'm going where God is. And both of them came, one at first, and then the other, and they both confessed Christ as their Savior, and they turned away from their sinful ways. And they're living a restored life. FBC, I want to be a place where God is, amen? And if that means that we've got to do the uncomfortable and hard work of talking about sin and dealing with sin, I'll take it. Because that is a billion times worth it if we get to be in the presence of God. Okay, before I close, I just want to answer some commonly objected questions to this because I can't hang around in the lobby to hear you. So I'm going to just anticipate what you'll say to me. Um, Maybe you won't because you all adore what I say. I know. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, first one. A, but aren't we to be friends of sinners? Wasn't Jesus known as the friend of sinners? Yes, he was. And we should be known that as well. But clearly, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 5. He's saying, remember, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to get out of this world. You need to go. If he was calling us to do that, he would have ended this verse 10 by saying, get on a spaceship and leave, right? We're not to separate ourselves from the people of this world. Of course, lost people act like lost people. It always makes me laugh as a pastor when Christians are surprised that sinners sin. Like, what else are they going to do? Paul is talking about people in the context of chapter 5 of people within the church who bear the name brother or sister. Now, we as a church, not just our church, but churches in general, we usually do the opposite, don't we? We isolate ourselves from the world and we, don't to- and we tolerate the sin within our midst. Paul says cancer outside the body is not a threat to you, but it's a threat to you when it gets inside the body and it destroys it. So by all means, we need to reach out. We need to befriend sinners. We need to go to the darkest places of Drumheller and shine the light of Jesus. But we must also be protectors of the unity of our church when it comes to those who claim Christ. Second, B, shouldn't our church be a hospital for the broken? Yes, A thousand times yes. Let me make this as clear as possible. We are not talking about, Paul is not talking about excluding people who struggle. Because that would be all of us, including me of the first first most, right? So he's not talking about what Paul has in view here. Again, I know I sound like a parrot, but he has here defiant, unrepentant postures by people who name the name of Christ. C. You only pick on certain sins, you Christians. You You only pick on those certain sins. Unfortunately, that's so true. Many churches throughout history, a lot of times we make a big deal out of the sins in the common world that we call sin, and then we wink at the sins of the powerful and the rich within our church. Conservative Christians have a list that they make a big deal out of, and we ignore the rest, and so do progressive Christians, if you can, yeah, anyways. But they they have a list that they make a big deal out of and ignore the rest. But 1 Corinthians 5.11 says... But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Get that? If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a revival or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The point here is not the type of sin that is committed. It's the attitude, the posture that is behind that sin. Because we all still sin. But we have a posture of repentance when we do. And that's what matters. D. Oh, sorry. Oh, I must have skipped D. 
Oh, sorry about that. Okay, D is, what about the command not... Oh, what about the command not to judge? And this is a big one, so let me spend a few seconds on it. Maybe you saw in verse 3 where Paul says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And you're probably thinking, wait a hot second there, Paul. Aren't we told not to judge? Jesus tells us not to judge. Judge not that you may not be judged. And that, unfortunately, is the most famous verse in the Bible. It used to be John 3.16, but now it's this one. If you ask the average person on the street to name you two verses, it will likely be judge not in John 3.16. It's going to be one of those things. Uh, and, and even when I typed into Google this last week, the Bible says not to. It was the second highest one. The first one, it was funny, not to eat pork. But uh, <laughs> I don't know why. And then the second was not to judge, right? And so even Google understands this. I even heard a conversation between Bill Mayer, uh, an atheist, who quoted this. And he says, who are you to say that this is wrong? Doesn't your Bible say judge not? But is that what Jesus meant? That, should, that we should never confront someone for being wrong? How could it mean that? I mean, like, just look at the ministry of Jesus. He spent his whole ministry telling people that they were in error, and he told them and rebuked the works of darkness. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, judge not? In the context of Matthew 7, where that verse is coming from, he's talking about sitting in a place of judgment over someone as if, one, you don't have sin yourself, and secondly, that you're in a place to pass ultimate judgment on them. He's not talking about telling the truth. He's talking about writing them off beyond hope. Christians are bad for this. Hey, you should share the gospel with your neighbor. No, my neighbor would never get saved. Who are you to judge that? You are not the ultimate judge. That's the context he is talking about. Paul is not saying cut them off from the church and declare them rejected from God. In fact, the whole point in doing this is that they wake up and repent. We want to see them restored. When we do something like this, we do it from a posture, not of a posture of uh, judgment of passing a sentence, but we do it with arms wide open like our Father did for us when we returned to Him. We always receive them back when the prodigal son or daughter comes. It's loving them. We have to get rid of the idea in this day and age that speaking the truth is judging. And no one really thinks that, by the way. It's just a, a phrase we use of a cop-out to excuse our sins. Because if we truly believe that, we would essentially be saying that we shouldn't talk about any injustices at all. Because if we were following that logic, that flow of thought, that we shouldn't speak, uh, uh, that we shouldn't judge, we would say that we shouldn't speak about any injustices of our age, things like racism, things like discrimination, that we should just shrug our shoulders to those things because who are we to judge? They can live their own life, right? That's ludicrous. We don't believe that. And we all know it. Because love requires us to speak out. Telling someone the truth is not judging them. It's what you do after you tell them the truth that determines whether you are judging them in the way that Jesus forbid. Are you writing them off or are you inviting them in? Okay, last objection. Does this actually even work? Doesn't this just drive people further away from the church? And the simple answer is it does work. There are many, many stories that I could fill this time with that when this is done right, it's successful. And then I could equally fill this time with many, many stories of when this is done wrong and things have went horrible and they've crossed the line into spiritual abuse. I could fill this section with, with so many successful stories that I know of trusted brothers and sisters, even within our fellowship of churches, who have practiced this and have seen people come under discipline and after a long, painstaking time, because this isn't we just throw them out and never talk to them. This is the elders meeting with them and setting up stages and walking through them with discipline and, and careful discipleship and then restoring them. And these people came back restored, greater and more in love with Jesus. It's beautiful. But I also want to acknowledge the fact of the times that we live in. During the writing of this letter, there weren't other denominations within Corinth or anywhere. There was one church. Yes, there was multiple locations, but one church. So they were all under one authority. So they couldn't run to another church and hope they could hide out there because it would be known that they were under discipline. But sadly, today, with every church, for whatever reason, wanting to be in competition with each other and rather than reaching the lost, it makes no sense. We try to steal other Christians rather than <laughs> make Christians, I guess. Um, but with every church uh, being uh, in competition, a disciplined member can very well just run to another church and hide out there and the elders do not have to heed our warning. But I want to make myself clear. If someone were to come here 
from another church, and their elders call me, and they share that they are under church discipline, and, I, and we examine it as an eldership, and we conclude that that person is actually under church discipline, rightly so, we will uphold that discipline here. This is not a place for you to come to run from your sin and cause disunity here. This is a place where we deal with sin, we see you restored and worshiping Jesus more. Amen? I'm here for the sake of salvation. And I just want to go on the record saying that. So we don't obey scripture because it works. We obey it because God said it. But we shouldn't be surprised when it does work. I told you a few weeks ago that I don't stock the pantries of scripture. I just put the meal together, whatever's in there. And that's what I've done with this weirdest passage in scripture, quite frankly. I'd rather just skip this, but we can't do that. If you're here and you're not a believer, I want you to know that we don't pass judgment on you. But we do want you to know that we do take sin seriously because Jesus does. Because hear this, sin destroys people's lives. It was so bad that Jesus had to die a bloodied, tortured death on the cross to release us from it. And I want you to see that your sin puts you in grave danger. The good news of the gospel, though, is this. John 3, 17. That's not it. Oh, yes, it is. Okay. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That means that Jesus doesn't stand before you today as your judge to condemn you, but rather he stands as your savior to save you. He extends salvation to all who hear and receive him. And that means you today. But if you won't receive him as savior, then you will stand before him as judge. You will encounter Jesus as one of two things in your life. As savior or as you die, you will receive and see and experience him as judge. There are two ways that you can pay for your sin. You can receive Jesus' total and final payment on your behalf, or you can reap the consequences of your sin in eternity. Sin is serious. It's deadly serious. But Jesus saves. In FBC, we want to be a church that does whatever it takes to make that message clear. Do you see sin as serious today in your life? Are you ready to repent and come to Jesus? Do you need to make a decision to join and actually get involved in this church? If you're serious about this, don't just attend here. Become part of the family. This is a shelter here from the attacks of Satan, from the heavy burdens of life. I promise it's not a bunch of people who microanalyze your life. It's a community where people are ready to love, serve, and lay down their lives for each other. So come. Become family. Sitting in a service is not being family. Sitting in on a family Bible study doesn't make you part of the family, right? You're just attending. Join in. Be in relationship here at the church. Be in relationship that you're close enough that you're known and you can be known and know others because that is what church is. If there's someone in your life, even within this church, we're going to go to communion and you want to make things right, you need to have conversations with them, I encourage you to do that. Let's protect the unity of this church. Let's deal with the sin within our midst. And if they're not here, let's pray. Pray for them. Pray for them that you would have the courage to speak with them and that God would bring reconciliation. So we're going to go to communion now. But as we go to song after communion, I want to invite you, if you're here and you're ready to surrender your life to Christ, I'll be standing up here in the front row. If you're ready to come, come up, receive Christ. If you're here and you're going, Aaron, I've, I'm, I'm that guy who's been defiant in my sin, but I'm ready to stop. Come, let's pray. I want to see restoration. Amen? Amen. Communion is a clear picture of what we're talking about today. It's a, sim- it's, a, it's, it's, it's a symbol of Jesus living and dying and rising on our behalf. It's a symbol of that protection that the church has under the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're here in your family or if you're here and you're a Christian from somewhere else, but you're living a life that is conducive with the Bible, I encourage you to partake with us today. But if you're here and you still don't know Christ, I'm not saying you don't struggle, I'm just saying you don't know Christ, you're an unbeliever, I ask that you refrain from participating in the elements. Okay? Nobody's going to care, nobody's going to judge you, but we can also fix that issue during the song too. Amen? 
Would you stand with me as we take communion? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The blood, the protection, what we're under as a church. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Jesus Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By taking this cup together, we are committing to each other as family. And we must uphold each other. We must love each other. We must correct each other when it happens. And we must commit our lives to the teaching and living of his word and be empowered by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for Fellowship Baptist Church. It's such a joy of mine to be the pastor here, to be their servant, O God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that Scripture is hard, that it cuts us and it heals us at the same time. Father, may your Spirit apply these truths to our lives. May what we remember is not what the guy up front was yelling about, but what your Word says, O Lord. Father, may you impress these words upon our hearts and our minds, and Lord, would you transform us. Father, would you protect the unity of our church. Father, would you use this church not to just be so focused on vain things, Lord, but to be focused on one another, to build each other up and to reach into the community that when people come in for the first time, they would see the healthy family of Christ, which you said in your intercessory prayer, the unity of your church is the greatest sign of evangelism to the unbelieving world. Father, bless this church. Revive this church once again so that we may rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come, I'd be, I'll be at the front row.